Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This is a story about empowering the little guy and how sometimes that empowerment backfires. In this case, the little guy was named Lynn Jordan. Jordan needed to buy prescription medication. And back in the 1970s, the state of Virginia had a law that barred pharmacies and pharmacists from advertising how much prescription drugs cost. For consumers like Jordan, that was an expensive problem. Pharmacies priced drugs wildly differently, but there was no way of checking on those prices. There was no internet, of course, no advertising, and many pharmacists would refuse to tell you the prices over the phone because of the law. But help was on the way. In the form of a young lawyer who had risen to fame arguing that American corporations often didn't think nearly enough about the health and well-being of consumers. The lawyer's name was Ralph Nader. And he had initially been a critic of car companies, who, in his view, were not doing what they needed to do to keep passengers safe. Nader founded a group called Public Citizen, which advocated for the little guy. And he brought in a team of brilliant lawyers. Well, the story of Ralph Nader is really one uh, about some of the dangers of innovation, that sometimes innovation designed to help you ends up helping your direct competitors even more so. That's Adam Winkler, a law professor at UCLA and author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. The case around whether individual consumers were entitled to know the drug prices at pharmacies went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, uh, of course, Nader was trying to help the consumers of the drug price information, not the pharmacists. And he went to the Supreme Court saying that even though uh, I'm not representing pharmacists, my the consumers have a right to hear the, the messages that the pharmacists will say. Uh, and the Supreme Court agreed and established what's known as the listener's rights theory of the First Amendment. And the idea is that speech is protected regardless of the identity of the speaker so long as it's valuable to the listeners. It was a huge victory for Nader and his hotshot legal team. They not only won, they won big. In fact, only one justice dissented, a conservative justice, William Rehnquist. Rehnquist worried that this might seem like a victory for the little guy, but that's not really what it was. What it was was free speech for corporations. At a time when the government frequently banned or severely curtailed advertisements for things like liquor, and this case established a new standard. It would lead, Rehnquist wrote, to, quote, active promotion of prescription drugs, liquor, cigarettes, and other products. He warned that before we knew it, pharma companies would be selling us sleep aids. It would be a disaster. We know a place where tossing and turning have given way to sleeping, where sleepless nights yield to restful sleep, and Lunesta can help you get there. Amazingly, Rehnquist had seen the future, and it was filled with sleep aids. Probably not what Ralph Nader was hoping for. And in fact, um, the head of Ralph Nader's organization, Public Citizen, uh, recently wrote an article calling for the entire line of First Amendment cases extending rights to corporations to be overturned. Like, so what he's really saying is the victory I won, I wish it had never happened. It's a very uh, poignant version of constitutional buyer's remorse. That remorse, no doubt, is compounded because the Virginia pharmacy case turned out to pave the way for another case, a 2010 case called Citizens United, which allowed corporations to contribute to political campaigns during elections. Adam Winkler, the UCLA law professor, says that Citizens United was a case that extended the civil rights of corporations. 
even if ordinary Americans were not huge fans of the notion that corporations needed civil rights. Corporations are people, my friend. We can raise taxes on... Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So... That was presidential candidate Mitt Romney at the 2011 Iowa State Fair. And his assertion was ridiculed. The clip was played over and over, probably to the chagrin of his campaign staff. But in some sense, Romney was not too far off the mark. Corporations have all sorts of rights you may not know about. Well, it turns out that like women and minorities who were left out of the original promise of we the people, corporations, too, have been fighting for equal rights for over 200 years. And, Mm. of course, corporations don't risk their lives the way civil rights marchers did. And there's no moral equivalency between those uh, various movements. But corporations have been fighting for 200 years to win the fundamental rights in the Constitution and today have nearly all the rights that a corporation could be uh, imagined to want, uh, freedom of speech freedom of religion, freedom against unreasonable searches and seizures. So um, most of our most fundamental rights do apply to corporations thanks to a 200-year effort by corporations to win those rights through landmark Supreme Court rulings. Hmm. Um, You've written about how innovative. Over a long period of time, corporations have been with the law and with getting it reinterpreted. Um, And you particularly highlight the 14th Amendment. Can you talk about like what the 14th Amendment is and what happened with it. The 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War to protect the rights of the newly freed slaves. But um, about 15 years later, um, the Southern Pacific Railroad Company launched this remarkable series of test cases saying that corporations should be protected by the 14th Amendment, too. And uh, the story is one of the most disturbing in American constitutional history. Um, The Southern Pacific Railroad hired a lawyer who was a former drafter a one-time drafter of the 14th Amendment. And he told the justices that the framers had intended to protect corporations, not just the newly freed slaves Mm. in the 14th Amendment. Turns out that historians now know that that lawyer lied to the Supreme Court. Um, But nonetheless, uh, the court ultimately agreed and did extend those rights to corporations. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Adam Winkler. He's a law professor at UCLA. He's author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Um, I said at the beginning that uh, the little guy has sometimes gotten hurt by uh, cases that have ultimately piled up more and more civil rights on the corporate side. Um, But that is not always true in the stories that you tell. And and you talk about this um, man in the early 1900s who owned an amusement park, and he actually used the power that corporations had gained uh, to protect his own civil rights. Uh, So the man who owned the amusement park uh, was African-American, and he was sued by folks in Virginia who were saying, listen, we don't want all these African-Americans coming into our neighborhood to go to this amusement park. Um, And the owner was actually able to defend himself because corporations had such extensive rights. Uh, Do you want to talk about that case? Sure. It was a case involving, like you say, an amusement park for uh, African-Americans in Virginia back at around the turn of the century. And the local neighbors sued uh, trying to put the amusement park out of business because they said uh, that African-Americans were not allowed to buy the land that the amusement park was located on. Okay. Was that in the law that African-Americans were not allowed to buy that land? 
wasn't that the law said that African Americans couldn't buy the land. It was there were restrictions in the deed of the land that okay. said it could not be sold to African Americans. Okay, okay. Um, this was a racially restrictive covenant, a commonplace way in which racial segregation was enforced in America in the Jim Crow era. And uh, the court nonetheless ruled in favor of the amusement park, saying that uh, the amusement park was not owned by African Americans. It was owned by a corporation. And mm. the corporation may have been run by African Americans, but the corporation had no race itself, the court said. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, really highlights an interesting and unexpected phenomenon I found in looking at the history of corporate rights is that in many ways it, the rights of corporations became tied up with questions of race, slavery, and civil rights, just like almost anything else in American history. To go back to Mitt Romney, that that famous quote, you know, corporations are people, couldn't you argue, and I I, I guess corporations probably have, that, you know, look, corporations are a collection of people and um, their interest, you know, when they fight for their interest, whether it's talking about tariffs or whatever it is, they are fighting to keep their workforce, to not have to lay people off, to be profitable, to share those profits. Isn't that in some, you know, I think, you know, people derided Mitt Romney, but isn't that a reasonable way to look at things that corporations are a collection of people and they're trying to act in their best interest? That is exactly the way the Supreme Court has tended to view corporations over the course of American history. Indeed, for all the controversy over corporate personhood, Citizens United never relies on that idea at all. And in fact, what I find in my book is that if you look at the history of Supreme Court cases extending rights to corporations, we find that most of those cases, the Supreme Court rejects the idea of corporate personhood and says instead that corporations are associations of people Mm. and that people come together in the corporate corporate form, and they shouldn't lose their rights when they do so. Mm -hmm. But there are some interesting questions about who really belongs to the corporation. When Hobby Lobby refuses to provide birth control as required under federal law in health care plans for employees, um, that's, you know, 10,000 female employees who are adversely affected by Mm -hmm. that decision uh, that is made by, uh, to pursue the interests of the four or five owners of the Hobby Lobby company, um, whose interests really should be uh, recognized, the the people who contribute the money or the people who contribute the labor and everything else. Can you imagine a whole bunch more cases coming down the pike, like as more CEOs get active and get involved? Um, I think of Bank of America that just a few months ago said they don't want to finance companies that that make uh, weapons like the AR-15. We've seen Patagonia sue the Trump administration over uh, national monuments and protection of national monuments. I just wonder if there's going to be a whole new crop of these cases that, like, test the power of corporations. We're really seeing a flourishing of corporate rights cases, and we're seeing lawsuits brought against graphic cigarette warnings. We're seeing lawsuits brought against conflict mineral disclosures uh, under the securities laws. And indeed, by one study, a full 50 percent of all First Amendment cases brought today are brought by corporations and trade associations that represent them. Adam Winkler is a law professor at UCLA. He's the author of the new book, We the Corporations, How American Businesses Won Their Civil Rights. Adam, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. 
We talked earlier about a lawyer who lied to the Supreme Court, saying that the drafters of the 14th Amendment, which gave rights to former slaves, meant to give rights to companies, too. Well, that man, former Senator Roscoe Conkling, also turned down a nomination to be on the Supreme Court twice. He's actually the last person in American history to decline an appointment to the Supreme Court. We're going to have more on him and his strange and extraordinary life at our website, innovationhub.org.